Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you um, this morning and just thank you for, um, for, your act, for your work in all of our lives. Lord, so it's, often um, it's hard to see uh, the path, the journey. Sometimes um, we don't know where you're calling us, and, and yet uh, you promise that you work out all things for our good. And Lord, we saw that today in the story that Heather shared with us. Uh, God, we just pray that... Uh, uh, that as we approach your word here uh, in a minute, and, and particularly difficult passage that you, that you speak to us through it, wherever we come through the doors with, um, that we can hear your voice spoken to us uh, so that we can know who you are better uh, and uh, be encouraged to know each other better as well. Amen. All right. Um, so there, there, uh, there are some weeks in which you, I can sit down with the passage that we have, and, it, and they just come easy, right? You sit down, and it all comes out really f- quickly and, uh, and fits together nicely, and I feel really good about it. Uh, and then there are weeks where I, I get halfway and delete like four times. Um, that was this week. So trying to figure out how to tackle the story we're going to talk about today was, was difficult. <clears throat> um, We've been, we've been working our way through Genesis, and I hope you've been enjoying that so far. We started uh, by looking at you know, Genesis 1 through 3, just the, the beginnings of all of these different things, and, and uh, moved from there into the story of Cain and Abel, which we looked at for the last two weeks. Um, and so, note, admittedly, the last three, two week, three weeks, when we talk about Genesis 3, 4, and 5, have been a little heavy um, whenever you're tackling with or wrestling with the topic of sin, that's what happens. And, and today we're going to stay in that space one more time um, in the story of Noah. And so uh, Noah is one of those stories that, um, that on the one hand, uh, many, uh, is probably one of the most popular ones in the Bible. Most, most people know the story of Noah, uh, at least in some way or another. Um, but from, if you've been in the church, your stories, you, a lot of us then wrestle with the story of Noah uh, through the lens of our, like, children, of our children's Bibles, right? So uh, the story of Noah tends to be one of the ones we tell most often to our kids, which if you actually stop and think about it, that's the weirdest story we tell our kids ever, right? Let's just acknowledge that a minute. You know, we like to tell it like this, right? So you go to the kid's Bible and everybody's happy and you've got two by two and then the, the rainbow comes at the end, and they're like, hey, everybody. And we forget that there's, there's probably devastation everywhere in that last one, right? Like, uh, we're talking about the, the, the destruction of the whole human race. And so the, the smiley two-by-two animals, uh, which appropriate for downstairs, might need a revisit when we get a little older, right? That we... <clears throat> We realize there's a lot more going on there. It's interesting. If, for those who have been in the church a long time, we, we tend to not move past this idea. Uh, for those who aren't in the church, though, the, this story either becomes really troubling or our idea is more like Russell Crowe in his documentary on Noah. Maybe you've seen that? No? That's uh, okay if you haven't. It is not a good depiction of the story. Though the Nephilim in that story are rock golems, so that's kind of awesome, right? Like these giant rock Giants, things, I don't know, weird. Anyway, uh, Russell Crowe did one on Noah. But we tend to either sit in this child space or, um, or not re-engage if we've been in the church for a long time. But I'll tell you that people who haven't um, wrestle with the story of Noah as much as any others, right? If, if I'm going to talk to somebody about, who, has, who has hesitations or skepticisms about the Bible, there, there are a couple stories that tend to come up right away. One of them being Noah uh, and another one being Jonah. Those tend to both come up fairly quickly. And so, uh, 
I hope you've been able to see, uh, as we um, have been working our way through Genesis, that we real that there's a lot of rabbit trails that we could go on and that we've been trying to avoid and trying to look at more of a 10,000-foot picture of what's going on in these spaces. Now, what's so interesting as we've been able to go through the first five, coming up to the sixth chapter of Genesis, is that we've been in it for almost two months now, and I... I I have, I, every message we've had delivered here, I've felt really good about. I think it's, it's biblical. I think that we've been pointing people towards God. And at the same time, I actually think we could go back and do it twice more, teaching entirely different messages that I would feel just as confident about being biblical and leading us towards God. There's so many different themes that run through all of these things and different ways that we could take them. Uh, and that is n- no more true than the story of Noah that we have today. We've been progressing through Genesis where we, where we have creation, we, have, we see the fall of humanity, we have Cain and Abel, and we saw sin spread last week. And then it brings us to the story of Noah today, and we'll, we'll wrestle with that. But it starts in Genesis 6, verse 5. So if you're following along, uh, this is where it begins. <clears throat> so the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Whew, that is not the smiling, happy, two-by-two children's story, is it? It's a tough one. In only six chapters of the Bible, we've gone from garden paradise, which we saw in creation, to complete chaos. It's a devastating approach of, in which it, the image that we get is of human beings only desiring to hurt each other all the time. We talked last week about one of the things the, the devil was tempting Eve towards in the garden was to just give in to her animalistic instincts. We see that on full display here at the beginning of the story of Noah, that people are just out looking for themselves. Might makes right, violence... Uh, 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 violence was running prevalent, and, and the Bible describes it as their, heart, their, their, their hearts being turned towards evil all of the time. You, mad, you imagine like a Mad Max kind of thing, or, or, or some one of these spaces where it's just, it's, it's just vigilante justice, if any. Now, like I said, for many of us, we've never worked past the kids' version of the story. We read this, we say, people were bad, so God got mad, and so Noah was good, and he made God glad, right? Now, that can work in a kid's story, right? And we, we kind of pause it there because we also have in verse 8 and 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was righteous and blameless among all the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And so we have Noah is the good guy, and so everybody else is bad, and so God's going to wipe them out, but he'll save Noah, who's the good guy, and we're okay with that. Now, like I said, the kids' version of the story is good for kids. We're probably not going to move into the fact that most people die downstairs. But throughout Scripture, it it says to us, it it describes these kind of ideas as as spiritual milk and meat. Uh, When we're approaching faith for the the first time, the the Bible describes us as infants, right? It is appropriate for infants to, to drink milk, which is what we do when we're in kids' ministry downstairs. But... Paul often then pushes us in that analogy to move past that to chew with some more difficult things. My hope is that we can do that this morning. Because if we stop at, this, at our spiritual milk understanding of these passages, uh, 
we, we miss some beautiful things in some of the harder stories that the Bible has to offer. Like I said, I hope you've been able to see that, that, that the, the complex themes that have already been running through the beginning of Genesis here. Because if we slow down and actually try to look at the story of Noah through those, those lenses, those adult lenses, a bunch of questions immediately come to mind when we engage with this story. And unfortunately, very uncomfortable ones. And I just want to start this morning by just throwing them out there. First, I know that, like we said, the kids' toys are cute with the animals and the smiling Noah, um, but this is the story of the, death of, of the death of nearly the entire human race, the death of the majority of the human race at the hands of God. And if we're not going to wrestle with that in a really intense way, we're not doing our evangelism justice. But I don't know, because I don't know about you, that's a hard pill for me to swallow, right? Kidifying it, if that's a word, makes it cuter, but it's not how the story is written, it's a hard story to read if you take it seriously. This is the first thing we have to wrestle in this space. Next, in the line that we read, it says that God regretted making humans. I don't know about you, but that's another one that sits with me heavily. Right? Did God, does God regret making me then? How does that play into today? It can create this idea that we have of God that if, I just, if I'm not good enough then maybe he'll be equally mad with me and cause the same kinds of things to happen. Now, sure, he has promised, if you read the story to the end, not to send a flood again, but doesn't say anything about, uh, about fire or like a massive asteroid or something, right? You know, like I'm just thinking like maybe Armageddon, right? So like is that, he didn't say anything about that. Does anybody remember that movie, right? Little Aerosmith, right? Then, yeah, okay. Wasn't the greatest movie, but just what I was thinking of when we were talking about asteroids. Oh, Lisa liked it though. You know, there's a soft spot in there. But we have to wrestle with that, right? Is God really saying, if you're bad enough, I'm just going to zap you? That's, we've been saying through this whole thing that we don't serve Zeus, we serve Yahweh. So how do we play with that in this story? That's a hard question. Or even more practical ones. What about vegetation, right? How did it survive? You've got water that covers all of it. How do, we, how do we have plants that survive through all of this thing? Any of us who don't have green thumbs know it's not that hard to kill plants with too much water. Anybody else done that before? Yeah, I see you out there. Yeah, right? Like you overwater a plant and you'll kill it. Some can survive underwater. Many can't. So what do we do with all that? Or the classic one. What about the dinosaurs? How does that work? Have they fit on the boat? Can we get all of them on there? Now, granted, I understand that there's a whole museum dedicated to that in Kentucky, and they had to do a lot of work to answer that question. Uh, you, have, you can wrestle with that if you want. We also have just the standard problem of there being about 8.7 million species of animals on, the, on, on Earth. Um, do we fit all of them on there? How? Or was there something that happened afterwards? Again, the, you, we have different explanations of how that works. These are all difficult questions to answer that aren't simple. Again, if you're new to the faith, these are the kind of questions that you're wrestling with and trying to figure out what do I do with all of that. So we're actually going to spend two weeks on Noah, to the next, this week and the next. We're going to try to answer a few of those questions, uh, but we won't answer all of them. Again, I, I throw it out there all the time. If you want to talk through some of them that we don't get to, let's grab coffee and I'll do my best. Uh, but the point of bringing that up is that it's simply to recognize that while the kids' version of the story is good for downstairs, we probably need to do more work with it as adults. 
And so I want to pause here for just a second to kind of set the scene of what we're going to try to do. Because in this particular story, the rabbit trails we could go on or the misunderstandings are really big. And so I, want to, I just want to pause here a second to offer you a tool that we talked about actually in Common Ground last week. So it's a shameless plug for tonight, too. But how, <clears throat> how we interpret the stories of Genesis 1 through 11 has been a source of a lot of Christian conflict over the years. Uh, we've, there's been some major fights and even splits in denominations about how we understand these particular chapters of the Bible. Someone like Ken Ham, who's the Creation Museum in Kentucky, would say that either you believe the, his literal version of Genesis, which already tips my hand on what I think about this one, but his literal version of Genesis 1 through 11, or you don't believe any part of the Bible, something that Ken would suggest. Now, to be clear, he's the, one, of the, one of the extreme understandings of Genesis 1 through 11. I'm not making a comment on older new creationism, but I am going to reject the idea that if you don't accept that version of creation, then you can't believe any of the Bible. I think that's garbage, and I think that should be thrown out. We can wrestle with those things in that space. But you have that one side of the, the argument that says if you don't believe a literal understanding of Noah or the creation story, then you don't believe any of the Bible. But then you have the other side of the spectrum as well, that if you, that if you, that if you believe anything that deviates from our current understanding of my, modern science, science, then you're just ignorant. And so not worth talking to anyway. We have both sides of these spectrums here. I reject the idea that, that we can't wrestle with the beginning of Genesis, but I also reject the idea that science has got it all figured out and that it always supersedes the Bible. That's not true either. See, what we have here in this particular discussion, we talked last week about how what, what motivates us and our beliefs comes down to what our deep loves are. What's the thing deep down inside of you that motivates you? And in this discussion space, even though people can come to different places, it's, because of a, it's often because of conflicting deep loves. So in Scripture, it tells, it tells us that God has revealed himself to us in three different ways. The first is through Scripture itself. It says God, Scripture tells us that God reveals himself through Scripture. Christians have called that throughout history something called special revelation. God's special revelation to us through the Bible. Um, for, for almost all of your denominations, that is the, 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 the place to get started, and I agree with that as well. But Scripture also says there are two other ways that we can know who God is. One is through the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes that also comes through special revelation. Some people kind of combine that together. That the Holy Spirit can speak to us and tell us uh, about God in that particular way. But the third category is something that we've known as, that Christians have called general revelation. And that says, the Bible says that God has revealed himself through the glory of creation. That, that in creation itself, we get to see who God is and how he interacts with the world. So in the case of something like Noah, uh, we're stuck with the, we have people who, who resonate with different kinds of revelation differently. Some people say this is the, that, you're, that the special revelation of the Bible says the earth was created in seven days and there was a worldwide flood and it's the only way to understand it and that supersedes everything. So therefore, our current understanding of science or general revelation must be wrong. And so they're trying to wrestle through those spaces and put a lot of energy and time to try to figure out how to make those two things come together. There are others, though, who will say, no, 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 hold on a minute. I, I do have a lot of love and faith in the Bible, but currently our general revelation of how the world was created over seemingly looks like a long period of time or, or the way the flood works doesn't match with my special revelation, so then maybe I'm misunderstanding what Genesis was trying to communicate. Does that make sense? 
In those spaces, both people are desiring to draw near to God and have come at it with a different primary deep love. That's the space that we're trying to create in common ground is to create a respect for both of those positions in that space. How do we wrestle with that? Is, is our understanding of general revelation, our science, wrong? Maybe. Is our understanding of what Scripture was trying to communicate wrong? Maybe. We at least need to give it due diligence and wrestle with it. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, that's what we're going to try to do here with Noah as well. What that might mean, though, is that we might come to different conclusions. What I, hope hap- what, I, what I hope doesn't happen in the midst of that space is that it becomes a reason for us to separate or split. I think the church has done a lot, way too much of that over the past few years. It's taken these issues that aren't even core to our faith, they're understandings of who God is, and we should wrestle with them, they're important, and we've used them for, as reasons to be divisive or dividing. In all of my experiences, if we're willing to engage with these things in an honest way, recognizing that we may have conflicting deep loves around certain things, what we tend to find is that when we wrestle with the stories themselves, what you find, even if you don't change the place you started, is you find that you've missed layers and layers of beautiful meaning that the Bible was trying to communicate. So there's my soapbox for the day, and I'm off it now. But what I want to do for the rest of the morning is take, uh, is take a quick look and I have to be, oh, jeez, I'm almost out of time already. Um, that's, I'm working on it. Okay, I'm trying to work on it and doing a terrible job of it, keeping us tight. I'm sorry about that. But, uh, okay, so what I want to do the rest of the morning is take a quick look at one aspect of Noah's story. It's not going to satisfy all our questions. I, I, I said that already. But hopefully it will teach us something about who God is and how we can understand this story. So to do that, I want us to quickly remind ourselves uh, of another story, which is in Genesis 1. And so if we can actually just throw this up, I can go through it really quickly here. If you just remember the progression of Genesis 1, you start with the Spirit of God hovering over the water. Day 1 is light and dark. Day 2 is water above and water below. Day 3 is water and land separation. Then you have sun, moon, and stars. You have fish and birds, animals and people. Then God gives a sign to Adam and Eve, and it ends in a garden, okay? It's a quick progression, but that's the Genesis 1 progression in a nutshell. So we'll leave, we're actually going to leave that up there. I'm going to read uh, some portions of the story here. And if Chuck, if you could just leave that up. Don't take this down. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis 8. So you'll have to follow in an actual paper Bible or on a phone or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but what I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to what we read, especially in how it relates to the things that are up there uh, in progression there. Now, we're not going to read the beginning of the Noah story, but in case you're not familiar with it, People are evil, uh, and God doesn't like it. We read the, the very beginning of it. And so he tells Noah he's going to flood the earth. But he's going to save Noah in a boat that Noah builds, uh, and he puts the animals on it. And then the rains come. So we have 40 days and 40 nights, uh, and everyone who's not on the boat dies, which I know is hard for us, and we're actually going to talk more about that part of it next week. Um, I would acknowledge that that's a tricky part of Scripture, and I wish we could... Had time to tackle it all today. We don't, but we will tackle it next week. For today, though, I want to start reading at chapter 8, which says this, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the water receded. So right off the bat, we started in Genesis 1 with the Spirit of God hovering over the water. And maybe it's harder to see the connection here in English 
But I'm wondering, does anybody know the Hebrew word for wind? This would be impressive. What? Yeah, that's great. I didn't expect that, but that's really good. This, the, the word in Hebrew for, for wind is ruach. Do you also know then the word for spirit in Hebrew? It's also ruach, right? So in Hebrew, the word for breath, the word for wind, and the word for spirit is all the same word. So what we have here right at the, be- at the beginning of our story of Genesis 8 is what we have God remembering Noah, which isn't that he forgot, it's calling him to the front of his mind to take action according to is how, what remember means. And then what happens? God sends a ruach, a spirit over the earth. So we have only watery chaos and the spirit of God getting things moving. Should immediately remind us of the story that we looked at at the beginning of the Bible. Continuing on, now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed and the rain stopped falling from the sky. Now, it's an interesting choice of language, right? Um, we, uh, we have the floodgates and the deeps closing up, and uh, now a lot of interesting conspiracy theories have been built over this particular verse. This is the favorite of flat earthers. If you're here at flat earther, it's not what that means, just so you know. Um, it's my rejection of that. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, but that's where they'll say that you have waters above and you have waters below, right? Um, which also we see is day two. But, also, but you wonder, then where's light and dark? Well, it says the sky's clear, meaning we have dark clouds that clear to give way for light to come through. Any good Hebrew reader would immediately see, okay, I have the Spirit of God hovering over chaos. I have a wind coming that blows it away. I have the clouds opening up to give light. And I have water separated again into waters above and waters below. Continuing on. The water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the Mount of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So we have water, we have wind, we have light, we have dark, we have waters above, and we have waters below. And what's the first thing Noah sees? The top of a mountain, which is land, right? Points us in that particular direction. Then it goes on to make sure it gives us dates, both days and months. How do you measure uh, the, uh, the length of a day? The sun, right? How do you measure the length of a, of, a, of a month? Especially in the ancient world, you do that with the moon, right? So we have the sun and the moon here. Continuing on, after 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven and kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. We have sun, moon, and stars, and then Noah sends out a bird, Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So we returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove back and brought it it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove again from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there there in its beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. Now, we can think some of these are coincidences, but we don't have that. We send out a bird who finds what? He finds a visitation, which is what comes next in the creation story. So then Noah knew the water had receded from the earth, and he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw the surface of the ground was dry. But the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, 
Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his, and his, wife and his sons' wives, and all the animals and creatures that move along the ground and all the birds and everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. But stay six, animals and people. What happens at the end of the story? The animals come out first, and then people come out next. Finally, in Genesis 9.20, it says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Noah plants a vineyard, or in other words, a garden. Even the language that we have in Genesis 9.20 is strange because it says, Noah, a man of the soil, which is a weird kind of thing to add in there unless you're a Hebrew reader who's been seeing the parallel between Genesis 1 and Genesis 8 and 9 here. Because in Hebrew, the name Adam literally means of the dirt or of the soil. So an Adam is a, someone who is from the soil, which then Noah is the Adam man who plants a vineyard. Essentially, Noah is Adam 2.0. To even lock that in in one more space, the first thing that God says to Noah after the flood is in Genesis 9.1. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the and fill the earth, which is the words that God speaks to Adam as well. What's being laid out here in Genesis 8 and 9 is a completely fresh start, a new creation. The idea that there's going to be something new that comes out of what was before, with one more piece. See, when we read this story, we often read it as God destroying humanity, which be, which that, and that being the only purpose for the flood. But that reading misses something very important the Bible is trying to communicate with us here. We've seen this trend run through the first few chapters of Genesis, and we see it come to a culmination here in Noah's story. Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, if you remember back to that story. And one of the thing that, things that comes from that is that they're sent out and that God puts a curse on the ground. God says to Adam that what used to come easy will now be tough. You're going you're to eat by the sweat of your brow and the toil uh, that you put into the soil. That it's not going to be easy to produce food anymore. We have a curse that's placed on the ground itself. That theme continues actually in the story of Cain and Abel as well. If you remember that from a few weeks ago in, in Genesis 4.10, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Two stories. Two times the ground is corrupted. The earth has been corrupted by the violence that we've brought to it. Which is something that's easy to miss in our story today as well. I want to read to you Genesis 6, 11 again. I want you to pay attention not to people this time, but how often God talks about the earth itself. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. 
Something I hadn't noticed before, but it's clear through the way that God talks that one of the purposes that's happening is that the earth itself had been corrupted. That there's something wrong with that as well. And actually, I've been reading through Rabbi David Foreman, who, is a, who used to be the chief rabbi uh, for the Jewish faith and obviously an Old Testament scholar then as well. And that's his argument, that, that part of what God is doing here is cleansing the earth, is, is making it right again because what we've done is corrupted the entire thing. So what does that mean for us then? See, the story of Noah is complex and for some of you troubling, and I fully realize that still a thousand questions we haven't answered. I get that. But the story of God destroying the earth is a hard one for many people, but, people seems to, but this passage here seems to suggest that one of the things that was motivating us is that people had already begun to destroy themselves and the place that they were living. So we've talked a number of times about how we view God as going to shape the way that we view these stories. So Genesis 6:11. now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. The word full here is actually the same one that God, used, that God tells Adam and then eventually tells Noah again when he says, be fruitful and, and, and fill the earth. The charge that God had given Adam was to take the, was to, in, in his relationship with God, go and spread out to the rest of the world and fill it with the peace the garden was supposed to create. So there's a strong suggestion in the scriptures that the garden is this special place that God created for Adam and Eve and that their purpose was to spread the edges of that garden out across the rest of the world, to bring the peace and relationship that God wanted to have with all humanity that starts in the garden and bring it out to the rest of the world. In our story in Genesis 6, though, what we see is that the task that was given to Adam to fill the earth with peace of the garden had actually been accomplished, but in the, but in the opposite way. That now, the, instead of filling the earth with the peace that was created, we filled it with violence and corrupted the earth itself. We were supposed to bring the peace of the garden and instead brought the hell of violence. If we read the story from the fall to Noah, we see a constant and continual corruption of humanity as they strive to be the gods of their own lives, moving to a place of callous disregard for human life. No one cared about harming others. They cared only about themselves. Their thoughts were only evil all the time, the Bible says. We talked last week about the imagery of the animalistic way that, that that functions, right? Might makes right. If something's stronger, they just come and take what they want. We saw that with Cain. We see that with Cain's descendants. And we see that uh, progressing to the time of Noah. So the arguments the rabbis make, and you can wrestle with this. I understand there's a place to push back on this too. What they'll say is that the flood doesn't actually destroy humanity. They would argue that humanity has already destroyed itself. They would argue that when God looks down at people and regrets making them, it's not for his sake, but for ours. He doesn't look down and go, I'm so sad that I wish that I could wipe them out. He says, I'm so sad because what they're doing to each other is only harm. That the good things that I had desired for humanity aren't being accomplished and instead are being actually carried out and acted out in the opposite way that was intended. See, we often like to think about God's wrath coming down here and him being bad for himself for what he created. But like I said, the rabbis and the text itself seems to suggest something otherwise. That he's sad for us. That he desired us to be peaceful rulers of the earth and instead we've created a miserable existence for everyone. 
Now you might be thinking, well, we looked at the line of Cain last week. We saw violence there, but it's different with Seth, but it's not. Genesis 5, 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. And he said, he will comfort the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Even in the line of Seth, where Noah comes from, they're still sitting there saying, this is a hard life and it's, and it's not fulfilling. Noah himself, his name means rest because they say hopefully he can get it figured out. So the whole thing has gone off the rails. People are doing the opposite of what they've been charged to do. There's, their violence and selfishness have even corrupted the earth itself. So now there's only toil and pain. And so God hits the reset button. What the rabbis suggest is that we had destroyed ourselves and the earth, and so God will recreate the earth. The flood isn't an angry, isn't angry vengeance-filled God. It's mercy for, and a fresh new start, they would argue. And again, I get there's pushback there. We can talk about that. Now, from 10,000 feet, we can wrestle with this story, but it lays some big questions that we'll get in when we zoom in next week. But for now, though, on a personal level for us, I think we can see that some of the truth being communicated in this story. I think for many of us, we have places in our lives in which we can see the need for a flood. What do I mean by that? We've experienced... <clears throat> uh, there are things that we have inside of us that if we're honest with ourselves, if we're going to take a good look at it, there's things that we know that have been corrupted and that need to die. Not us personally. This is not saying that you need to. You are valuable. You mean something. But we all have parts of ourselves that we hate, that we realize are holding us back, that are causing us pain, that we need to get rid of. Things that we're doing or ideas that we've been caught up with, things we do to hurt ourselves and those around us. Each and every one of us has it. No matter how good of a person we are, we know those things are still there. There are things in all of our lives that, been, that, that, are been, that have been corrupted and we need a do-over with, a second start, if you will. We were all created for good, for goodness. We were meant for glory, to experience beauty, to give, bring beauty to the earth and share it with each other. And if you're anything like me, you know that I've messed that up. There are parts of my life that I, as much as I would... The, Paul says it this way in Romans. There are th the things I want to do, I do not do. The things I hate, I end up doing. I, that unfortunately rings true in my life more often than I'd like for it to. Parts of our lives that seem like they're all evil all the time. And so the story of Noah then speaks into those spaces and actually begins the story we see carry through all the way to Jesus. See, what we see in this story is God seeing the pain that humanity has created and is sad for us because there is so much more available for us. Be fruitful and fill the earth with the peace and beauty of the garden had become, we filled the earth with violence and anger and evil. God knows there's so much more available to humanity, so much more available to us, and so he wants to flood the evil, corruption, and violence and chaos that our life has become out. Why? Because he wants to destroy us? No, but because he wants to redeem us, which is a theme that we see begin in Noah and play itself out again throughout Scripture. For the sake of time, we could actually find more examples of that in the Old Testament as well, but I want to jump right to the New 
One of the first things that was instituted in the New Testament church is the idea of baptism, right? The idea of baptism plays us right back to Noah, including the water. In baptism, what happens, especially the word baptizo itself in Greek is to be immersed. Now, I understand there's a debate between infant and adult baptism. It's not what we're doing today, but the word itself means to be immersed. And one of the pictures that we have here is that when you're baptized, you go under the water. Why? To symbolize death. If, if you were to stay under the water, you wouldn't be able to breathe. You would die. It symbolizes a flooding But in baptism, you obviously don't stay there. You come out into the new life in Jesus. We see the theme with Jesus in baptism, but it continues with Paul as well. In Ephesians 4, verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Or Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This idea of parts of ourselves that need to be either taken off, and that language assumes death as well, or just needs to be killed. It's an image that we get over and over and over of taking the corrupted, broken parts of ourselves and taking them serious enough to remove them or flood them out of our lives. We can view the story of Noah as an angry, wrath-filled, vengeful God. But if we slow down and see it, what, we, what, what I think we can start beginning to take from it, recognizing there are parts we still have to wrestle with, is a God who's seen the potential that you have to offer and realizes that if we're going to ever reach that, there has to be some kind of reset button. Reset button that begins with the flood and then is expressed over and over again in the person of Jesus. That we have these parts of ourselves that aren't good, and so let's start fresh and new today. This invitation to take those, those things that we know that are hurting ourselves or others, the ideas that we have in our head that tell us that we're not good enough or valuable enough or worth anything or that we've screwed up too bad to ever get back or that this part of yourself that you hate, other people see it too and they can never accept you for that. The story of Noah is saying, take those things and let them go. Flood them out. Get rid of them because they prevent you from living into the kind of life that God desires for you. It's an invitation into the recreation that we're going to focus on next week too. That God says in the death of those things we see in the flood is the beginning of life anew. The story parallels Genesis 1 because because it wants us to see that in that flooding out on the other side is a new and fresh creation. So we work through those things. We take those areas of our lives and really try to cut them out. Not because if we don't, God will reject us. That's a lie we've told ourselves in the church for far too long. That if you're not good enough, that if you haven't done enough stuff, then somehow God's going to reject you in the midst of that. That is not how God works. That's, that's Zeus, again, not Yahweh God. At the same time, God takes sin very, very seriously and said, those areas of your life that are keeping you from the purpose that I invited you into, I want to kill. I want to get rid of them. Not so that you die, but because you, so that you live into the, into the purpose that I've given you in the first place. The 
There's a lot of things we can get distracted with in the story of Noah, and they're good to wrestle with. But I don't want us to miss this key theme that at its basis is simple, but at the same time is so important. Evil in our lives prevents us from doing the things that God has called us to. It holds us back. It hurts us and those around us. But the story of Noah is about a fresh start. It's about about humanity getting another shot at this thing after we've messed the whole thing up, corrupting even the earth itself. It's a representation of what the New Testament calls you are a new creation in Christ. That those parts of you that were corrupted like the world before Noah, once killed, give an opportunity to be a brand new creation in Christ. As Lisa mentioned before, this week is the beginning of Lent which comes at the end of a difficult section of the Bible and forces us to deal with our stuff. We've done that for the past three weeks. It just is. But we focus on these things because they matter. Because not understanding our predisposition to hurt ourselves and others does damage in this world around us. It creates chaos. But what we see in the story of Noah is that we don't live there. We clearly see in this story that our sin is serious, no doubt about that, but the good news is that it doesn't define us. The message of the gospel is very clearly that there are things in your life that are holding you back, but the message of the gospel is that you are a new creation, that each and every day that we interact with God, each and every day that we come into this space, there's an encouragement to get rid of the things that are holding us back and an invitation into something new. We live in a world right now that needs good news. If we're going to be preaching the the wrath of God on all the evildoers out there, what we're going to be called are hypocrites. In our all-staff meeting this week, when we have all the Harvard churches come together, we just looked at the statistics of the American church, and they're not fun. (laughs) They're dire. I think a lot of that is because we lost the good news of the gospel, which is, yes, you have brokenness in your life. We all do. Yes, it's holding you back, causing you pain. We all have that. But there's a better way. There's a way that leads to life. There's a new creation that comes out of those spaces if we can lean into Jesus. It's a message I hope you've heard here often. Because as dire, I don't want this to come across arrogant. I Hopefully you'll hear my heart in this. As dire as the numbers were, with most churches being down from 2022 to 2023 by 30 to 40 percent sometimes, uh, comparing the first seven weeks of January this year at Harbor Life to last year, we're up 70 percent. The message is gaining momentum when we say we're in this thing together to wrestle with those parts of our lives that hurt. We come together in this space because we know we've got areas of our life that we hate that are hurting us and holding us back. And we come together in this space because the good news is we can work together to something better. That's what we're doing here at Harbor Life. I think that's what the gospel continually calls us to. And I think that message started all the way back in Genesis 8. God doesn't give up on us. It doesn't matter how bad. We could have literally, we literally screwed up the entirety of the earth. Our hearts are all evil all the time. And God says, let's try this again so that we can live into what I've called you to. And so that's the challenge we have this week. Are there areas in your life where you know you need a flood? 
You need something to wash those away. The message of the gospel is there is a new fresh start tomorrow. Maybe you have to share it with somebody that you trust. But our hope is that we can own it. Not so that we feel bad about ourselves, not so that, we, not so that God doesn't zap us or that we, all of those things, but instead because we know that if we do, if we see it, there's a better life we can walk out into. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just come before you this morning and realize that, um, that like the beginning of the story of Noah, um, we've messed up some different things in our lives. All of us come, come to this place with different hurts and pains, but things that we know that maybe we're stuck in and we can't break and we know we're hurting ourselves. Lord, if, those, if that's the case, give us the, the, uh, the strength to be able to look at those honestly. To, get, to, to wade through the internal justifications that it's not so bad or it's not hurting us in those ways. We can actually engage with them in a serious way so that uh, we can put them off, that we can kill the parts of ourselves that are holding us back in that way. Lord, we pray the same for those parts of ourselves that are hurting those around us. Maybe it's our family, our loved ones, whatever it might be. Pray that you give us the energy, the, the wisdom and ability to see those things for what they are and, and, and uh, and step into those relationships differently or get help if we need it. But God, I also want to pray, as I know in a message like this, when we realize that we have parts of ourselves that we hate, that as we leave, you allow, your, you allow us to see ourselves through your eyes. That rather than, than feeling small or feeling not valuable or not good enough, we can actually see that the, your hope for each of us is to remove those things that are holding us back so we can step fully into the new life that you have for us. Help us to see ourselves as, as your beloved children. Lord, help us be good news to a world that needs it so desperately. Amen. All right. We are, we are not going to close with a song, but I will invite you to stand for the, uh, for the closing blessing. Friends, we have leaned heavily over the last few years into the, the, the message that there's a fresh start, there's a life, a valuable third-way life out there for all of us. So my prayer is that this week we can continue to represent that to the people who are in our lives. That we can, that we can take sin seriously that, because it's hurting us and walk into the new life that God's gives. So go with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he turn his face towards you and shine on you, and may you see yourself through his eyes so that we can remove the things that are holding us back and step into the world with the good news of the gospel that there's a better way in Jesus. Amen.